0: Hello, I'm Harry Glorickian, and this is the Harry Glorickian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. Today's guest, Brian Pepin, says there haven't really been any advances in the treatment of Parkinson's disease in a decade. The standard treatment is still the standard treatment, meaning various drugs to replace dopamine in the brain since the loss of neurons that produce dopamine is one of the hallmarks of the disease. But there has been one important change during that decade. Thanks to new technology, ranging from wearables like the Apple Watch to sophisticated deep brain implants from companies like Medtronic, we're now able to gather a lot more data about what's happening in the daily lives of patients with Parkinson's and how the disease is affecting their brain function and their physical movement which means now there's the potential to make much smarter and more timely decisions about how to dose the drugs patients are taking or whether they should think about joining a clinical trial. Gathering and analyzing that information and feeding it back to patients and their doctors in a form they can use is the mission of Pepin's startup, Rune Labs. Pepin thinks we're on the edge of a new era of precision neurology, where data gives doctors the power to predict the course of a disease and muster a meaningful clinical response. And as you'll hear, he wants Rune Labs to be at the leading edge of that change. Here's our full conversation. Brian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Harry. You know, I've read a bunch of stuff on the company, uh, sounds really exciting, but from everything I've read, it sounds like your mission at Rune Labs is to help patients and their doctors take a, a more data-driven approach to monitoring and treating neurological disorders, starting with Parkinson's. Yeah. So can you start by reminding listeners, what is Parkinson's disease, yeah. what causes it, how it's diagnosed, and how many people are affected by it?
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, Parkinson's, like a lot of neurological diseases, the underlying mechanism, um, there's uh, theories about kind of what there are, but there's, there's nothing that's really consensus, this is what Parkinson's is. It's, so Parkinson's, as we know it, is a collection of symptoms, a collection of patterns that we see in patients, uh, over, over time and uh, given points in time that we, we say, Hey, this is Parkinson's and, you know, we're going to treat that with this, this set of interventions. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's a movement disorder. It manifests as a movement disorder. Um, although it's driven by, uh, the degradation and the sort of dying off of neurons in the brain over time, uh, it, it typically affects folks over the age of uh, 55 but there's also um, a, a large fraction of folks with Parkinson's that are what's called early onset so they're getting it maybe when they're 30 Michael J Fox famously had ha, has or had early onset Parkinson's. Uh, yeah and there's um, you know pl- plus or minus 10 percent around a million folks in the. US with some some stage of Parkinson's disease um, so it affects about, know two-thirds of one percent and uh it's it also kind of of interest i think it's it's sort of uh often treated as a sort of model neurodegenerative disorder and that it's sort of uh in many ways just looks like accelerated brain aging right and this is just the it's the brain and for whatever reason aging in an accelerated way so that's yeah that's the the world in which we live in and and like as you kind of mentioned where trying to bring precision medicine to neurology, taking a Parkinson's first approach. You know, the, the big reasons for that are Parkinson's, the data is sort of available today. So there's a lot of data being generated just part of routine care that we have access to and and can make use. Uh, the, the clinicians are ready to actually use this data in the context of care. So that's super important. And then uh, also important is there's a, there's a range of new therapies that are in the development pipeline uh, where, the data that we're bringing to the table and this kind of precision medicine approach can accelerate the time of those therapies into the clinic. And that's an important part of what we're doing too, is, you know, we, I think we realize that what's available in Parkinson's today is, is mostly palliative care. It's not, it's not the end game for it. We want to help bring some of these things that are protective or even curative to market uh, as quickly as possible.
0: So. Yeah. So, so you, you know, you mentioned treatment. So can you explain to people maybe how, treatments for Parkinson's has evolved over, let's say the past decade, right? I mean, yeah, particularly, I think, you know, neuromodulation technologies, like, yeah. uh, deep brain stimulation. Yeah,
1: Yeah. well, so unfortunately, and this is uh, kind of a, a part of the reason why we exist, treatments haven't evolved really at all over the last decade. But if you go back into, you know, the, like, the last, I think, major addition to the the therapy pantheon was deep brain stimulation, as you mentioned, I'll explain that in a sec. But The sort of baseline therapy for parkinson's is a dopamine replacement so you have neurons in your brain uh dopaminergic neurons that are dying off you sort of compensate for that by by adding dopamine into the brain in a variety of ways and that helps it doesn't help slow the progression of the disease but it helps ameliorate the troublesome symptoms the movement symptoms and some of these things um eventually as as the disease progresses um that isn't enough. And so you have to do these second line sort of therapies, Uh, one of which is is called deep brain stimulation. So this is where you get a a pacemaker-like device uh, implanted into uh, the area of your brain that is sort of going most haywire, uh, right, in the disease. Um, We actually, one of our flagship partnerships is with uh, Medtronic who, who provides one of these devices and recently has started producing devices that are doing continuous sensing of the brain in addition to providing the stimulation that's really cool because it gives us a whole bunch of extra data about how to optimize patient's therapies i can talk about that but there's also other kind of surgical interventions there's um, what's called focused ultrasound so they go in and sort of get rid of a small very like millimeter chunk of the brain and that that helps ameliorate symptoms there's um clinical trials that people can enroll in things that we're involved in that are like stem cell replacement therapies. So somebody you actually get new neurons, stem cell neurons injected into your brain to replace the, the dead neurons. And then it's then like I said, a range of stuff in the pipeline that's kind of experimental.
0: But in reality, like I would, pardon me, like in my research, I would bet that you'd make the case that deep brain stimulation and other forms of neuromodulation are more effective when they're informed by deeper, richer data about the patients, and I'm not sure if that thesis is correct or not.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that thesis has been borne out um, for for a variety of reasons. So one, um, you know, there's a th- these patients; these therapies are not one size fits all. Like they, there's a lot of knobs that can be turned that really kind of customize it for each person, right? And if you're a busy clinician. Uh, how, how you going to know how to turn these knobs, right? Um, and so we we provide a lot of data that, tell, that kind of instructs how to turn these knobs in the right way so that the patients can can go home and, and really feel like they're getting the most out of this investment that they've made in their own treatment, right? They've, they've gone and had brain surgery. They should feel really good, as good as possible, right? Um, so that's one. I, I think the other side of it is, you know, who should be getting these therapies, right? And so uh, relative to the the clinical outcomes uh, I, I, m- I most even you know whether it's Michael J Fox or the the clinician organizations everybody sort of recognizes that something like deep brain sim- deep brain simulation is sort of underpenetrated like there's way more people that can benefit from it than are getting it but right. it's not always clear like what, who should you prescribe it to right so that's another area where data can be really important saying hey this is the phenotype of someone who is really going to benefit from this treatment. Therefore, you, the clinician and you, the patient, should feel have some increased confidence to go get this therapy uh, because we see that patients like you, 95 plus percent of the time get these great outcomes now. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the time, I mean, especially in all these neurological diseases, it's just trying to who should be in the trial, like why, should yeah. you know, finding that yeah. right person. Otherwise, you know, that, I think that's why most of these trials fail. Um, is because you just don't. You're not even picking the right population most of the time. That's a big
1: reason, yeah.
0: But let's back up here for a second. Like I, yeah, I'd love to understand more of the whole story of the company. I mean, you founded Rune Labs back in 2018, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Yep. I mean, how did that really come about? I mean, I, and and also if you could talk about you know limitations, shortcomings, f- or failings, you know that you saw in this whole area of data patients and brain disease
1: yeah um so i my, my kind of whole academic background kind of going back 10 plus years is was was in uh, this kind of blend of neuroscience and engineering and the neuroscience and in particular like human neuroscience like what's going on in human brains has always been an area where i've spent a lot of time and done a lot of work um i before starting this company spent five years at at Verily, and so when I joined, it wasn't even called Verily. It was just like group of ten people inside Google X, and kind of later became Verily, right? And I took initially a little bit of a detour from neuroscience, and kind of did did um, worked on a series of hardware and software platforms in diabetes, and then a little bit of work in immuno-oncology, um and got a view of like, oh, okay, here's like data informing and doing predictive things in medicine. Um, and here's how it can work when it looks good. And, and, you know, I'd had enough experience in, in these neurological errors you know, that, that was not how medicine works in neurology. Right? right. Um, and then the, the second half of my career at Verily, I, I got back a little bit closer to my roots and had the opportunity to start this neuroscience joint venture, uh, with some folks at GlaxoSmithKline called Galvani, we were building a new, um, basically a new class of therapeutics that um, through stimulation of peripheral, peripheral nerves in the gut could modulate immune disease. And mm-hmm. They're often running human clinical trials now. Um, so you can kind of follow along with them, but uh, kind of going through that, I, I, I came back to seeing all of these old problems when you're looking at how do you develop and deliver neuroscience therapeutics versus like what's going on in oncology. So you have, um, you're in a situation where in development animal models don't really recapitulate the human disease. So that's problematic. And then on the other side, you know, so you need human data, you need human data to be able to do anything, that is going to actually help you lower the risk of going into a clinical trial. And then, you know, but as human data hasn't historically been available. So it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing. And then I, I think I also got a view of like, cause we were planning for how this was going to like go to market and scale up. It's like, Oh, well, in order to deliver a complex therapy like this successfully, there has to be a data ecosystem around it. Otherwise, you know, the immunologists and neurologists, whoever, they don't have time to to deal with all this. Like they, they need to be, they need to be guided in the same way that if you think about a very complex therapy, like a CAR T therapy in oncology, like there's all of this data and support around it. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: so I appreciate, I was coming to appreciate that. And then I was, you know, kind of thinking about what I was going to do next after, after we were kind of wrapping up the Scalvani project and uh, you know, it was kind of, how can I get back to my roots in the brain? And uh, yeah. And, and, you know, just kind of saw this opportunity to bring together um, data sources specifically, you know, starting in Parkinson's that were becoming really prominent and being available at a reasonable scale. Like we weren't, these were gonna be thousands of patients. So things like the explosion of brain imaging, dat scans and structural imaging, things like the availability of high quality movement markers from the Apple watch, uh, for example. And then, then, um, you know, for example, our partnership with Medtronic, having these devices, which have previously been sort of quote like dumb devices, just kind of providing stuff, all of a sudden providing brain sensing because the electronic circuitry has evolved. Well, that's a massive new interesting data source. Again, that's at scale. So just kind of, you know, saw the opportunity and and figured the timing was right to to try it. Um, And we've been growing the company ever since. Uh, We started um, with a focus on supporting clinical trials. We launched a sort of real world care ecosystem in Parkinson's uh, in August of last year. And we initially launched at UCSF. We expanded to a couple more universities in February. And now we're sort of in like rapid expansion mode um, across the U.S. to health systems and clinics. Um, Yeah. And then, uh, you know, recently had this, uh, uh, we were able to kind of get the 510K clearance for the data we're bringing in from the watch. So that's, that's been really nice to have as well in terms of accelerating adoption hospitals and and also enabling some additional things that we could do in the context of clinical trials.
0: Yeah, we're going to get to the FDA approval shortly, but, but just to give people context. So if if I took Rune like out of the picture for a second, what was the standard practice of brain data tracking? I mean, What are the existing tools you might find in a neurologist lab for collecting, tracking EEG data or brain images of Parkinson's patients? Because I'm I'm trying to get a sense of (laughs) like how (laughs) were we in the dark ages or or, you know, what are you trying to compete against?
1: Yeah. So if you're I mean, if you're unlucky enough to have somebody, you know, with Parkinson's that, you know, you know, that a typical Parkinson's visit involves basically no data at all right? It's a, it's a very like tactile experience. You go in, the neurologist is sort of moving you around, you know, assessing how how rigid you are, how your gait is, how your tremor is just in that 20 minute window. You know, is that 20 minute window representative of your actual experience outside the clinic? Maybe, probably not, but that's, that's what they have to work with. Uh, They might, you know, occasionally look at an image to make just a decision to like, Oh, okay. Like, we see this image. We see that your your neuromodulation system was implanted correctly, and then they put that away and they never look at it again. Right? <laughs> uh, they certainly don't compare images across patients. So it's just that the you know a lot of what we built on the software side. And our company is like primarily software engineers. Like out of the sixty five plus people, it's thirty ish software engineers. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure that we built to just automatically go grab that data, structure mm-hmm. it you know, in these sort of layers where you have brain data, you have clinical data, then you have like the Apple watch patient data, and then and then just automatically surface those patterns. So somebody doesn't have to like go digging or like, you know, make guesswork. It's like, okay, well, here's the pattern. So here's the pattern that tells you whether somebody's dosing is off, whether maybe you want to switch from the standard version to the controlled release version, whether they might be a good candidate for deep brain stimulation, whether that therapy is optimized, whether they should be matched to a certain clinical trial based on their phenotype. Like neurologists really haven't had the tools to do much except for one size fits all treatments. Like, okay, we know you have this diagnosis, it's been three years since your diagnosis, therefore this is what we're gonna prescribe you, right? And so we're giving them We're giving them a much richer set Of tools and 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 again, really focusing on helping them see patterns which might otherwise be hard for them to see. That are now saying, "Hey, you can actually have a lot more context now to to treat this patient. This patient with a Parkinson's diagnosis two years in differently than this patient with a Parkinson's diagnosis two years in, and get optimal outcomes that are different for each of them in a way that you know, I frankly isn't isn't really." possible to the outside of maybe one or two like world-class top top centers yeah
0: you know it's funny i was laughing and i thought maybe i should be crying because like if you think about where things how things are done right it's compared to the data analytics we have now it sort of makes you like we're in 2022 what what the hell is going on? I mean, we should, I feel like we yeah. should be much farther forward than we are. Um, yeah. I mean, I think
1: the, the missing ingredient was the availability of data. I think it's, it's, it's fairly useful analogy to think that like kind of neurology is sort of where oncology was 15 years ago. And then, you know, on the back of the sort of genetics revolution, you know, there's all this great stuff that was able to happen in oncology Genetics hasn't been directly that useful in treating neurology diseases yet. Um, But there's all this other data that's available now that's kind of exploding that we can take advantage of. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I I didn't write any of my books or have this podcast before all this data started to become available, because otherwise it was just on paper. But let's talk a little bit about your your product, Strive PD. Right. This is a system that you're building that's designed to help people with Parkinson's disease Understand and track sort of their symptoms. Like it's an iOS app that's already out. I know you've already developed an Apple Watch app that we've talked about briefly. Yeah. And a wait list of patients who help you test it, right? So if you had to go through and describe it, sort of what kinds of data can patients enter into the app? Yeah. How does an Apple Watch add to the kinds of data that you can collect? I mean, Go through some of these and if you if you miss any of them, I'll throw in another question.
1: You know, the, the goal is to bring a super rich dashboard into the clinic that the, the neurologist and the patient can kind of look at together. And again, it can kind of inform which medication, which trial, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's, to get there, um, we we try to, we kind of work with patients, make sure they're using our kind of software in its intended way, especially two weeks before and two weeks after every clinical visit. So we can build that kind of continuous picture of how their disease is working in conjunction with their medications, with their environment, with exercise, with everything else, and bring that fully informed view. Um, While doing that, though, we really try to ask as little of, of folks as possible. Like they're already, they already have, you know, they have Parkinson's. Often they're trying to work, they're trying to travel, like we don't want to be a burden to them. So... Really, what we ask them to do is, is do a few kind of daily interactions with the app to help us kind of, again, get that sort of qualitative picture of how things are going and a little bit more mm-hmm. information about their medications. Um, we try to provide some utilities, like a medication tracker in there, and we can leverage Apple's medication tracker or sort of a built-in one. Um, and then we just encourage them to just wear the apple watch that's the great thing about the they can they can use the apple watch as normal they can receive messages they use a track exercise but in the background we can bring in all of this rich parkinson's movement data uh, and some sleep data where where relevant Uh, and that is just so helpful especially in context with this other stuff and helping clinicians understand if your dosing is correct if the timing between doses is correct if you're really like below or above a threshold of being well-controlled where you might really benefit from a new therapy. Um, the Apple Watch has been super, um, super impactful for that and and being able to predict whether or not like somebody is going to benefit from one of these things or how somebody might benefit. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, from the, you know, from the perspective of the patient, we want to make it like, you know, reasonably like if, if you already have an Apple Watch and an iPhone, it, it's really all you're doing is downloading an app and spending a few minutes a day on it and that's it. And then when you go into your next clinical visit, it should be a very different experience. Uh, instead of having this, like, going to say, oh, well, how are you doing uh, for the last six months? Like, you know, uh, and, and, and then being poked and prodded to figure out, like, it's it very like, well, I can see that you're having troublesome tremor at 9am to 10am most mornings. Uh, you know, and talk to me about, like, your medication schedule talking about this like is this consistent uh and then you can kind of dial in and say oh actually maybe you should be taking two pills in the morning instead of four but then we should dial up your evening dose to get that down or you know those kind of conversations can happen really really quickly as opposed to maybe not happening at all in the context of a 20-25 minute clinical visit
0: So so why the Apple Watch and I say that because like I just recently, you know, spent, you know, time talking to uh, the head of data sciences at Whoop, right, where it's 50 to 100 megabytes a day coming off this thing. Um, You know, why? Why this thing versus? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, Whoop is cool, too. I think uh, Apple Watch has like there there are eight million people over the age of 55 in the US that have an Apple Watch. So okay. you have this advantage of a massive install base of folks who are already using it. You have a, a ton of just kind of consumer acceptance and utility around the watch. Um, you know, we've, uh, obviously Apple's able to pour a ton of resources into development of watch, health kit. I mean, one of the, we, we really look forward to WWDC, which is Apple's big developer conference every year, because we get to learn all of the new features that we just automatically get to upgrade into our platform because Apple's been doing this work behind the scenes on sleep or, you know, actually, uh, you know, uh, gate metrics or, or whatever else. Um, that's, that's that's a huge benefit as well. So, but, you know, we, we are um, uh, integrating kind of mostly in the context of clinical trials with other wearables as well. But in terms of like that mass consumer, like getting to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of folks, um, So far, Apple Watch has felt like, you know, the right platform for us to be investing most of our time in.
0: So last month you got FDA clearance. So congratulations, that's huge. Uh, I always ask the, you know, people on this cutting edge getting these clearances, like, what went into getting that?
1: Yeah, a lot of work. Um, (laughs) You know, I think uh, there, there were kind of, Two elements of it. So one, you know, the, I think the quality of the science, whenever you're going for one of these things, the quality of the science going in has to be good. And and we we're fortunate that, you know, Apple had, Apple along with these kind of collaborators that are on this, this paper that they had published had already done a fair amount of work validation. And so we are able to kind of have a good baseline that we could kind of continue to go from and have a really high quality level of scientific validation of like, Hey, this algorithm is really good at detecting tremor and dyskinesia remotely in patients. So that's that was like step one. And then, you know, the other part of it was really kind of getting the FDA comfortable with, you know, here's a, a, a quote unquote consumer device that now in this specific context, we're turning into a medical device and and providing all of the right kind of infrastructure, whether it's kind of uh, testing, versioning control, like all of this stuff that's kind of happening between us and Apple. and to make sure that, um, you know, as Apple's device continues to evolve and get better as a consumer device, we can maintain like super tight quality control on what clinicians see in terms of like, you know, tremor and dyskinesia, for example. So there was a lot of kind of back and forth, making sure that we had that optimized, making sure we're able to prove that, test that, making sure that um, we're able to continue to ensure that over time. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was a process for sure, but it, you know, it when it, I've definitely been through worse uh, processes. Like, <laughs> I think it, it, it's one of these things where my, my sense is that regulators do overall recognize this is where things need to go in order to be able to enable high quality data at scale. And so, they're they're overall. I got the sense of they were trying to figure out how to make this work. They weren't trying to figure out how to like slow it down or block it.
0: I'm so glad you said that. I'm. I mean, you're one of the first people that's ever said that. You know, there's worse things than than working with the regulators at the FDA, because I usually get people that are freaking out about it. But but let me let me ask you a question. So if I'm not mistaken, the Apple Watch actually taps into something that Apple created itself, which is their movement disorder API. Yeah. Which was funny, because until I started to do the digging in, I I didn't realize that was there. Um, But how big of a deal was that for what you guys were tapping into for this
1: yeah i mean that was i i, I think i, I told the story in one of the interviews i did around it but um so we were this is early on a couple of years ago uh we were we were developing this out and you know apple allows you to get raw accelerometer and gyro scope data off the watch and so we had we had kind of thought oh, that's all we're gonna be able to get we're gonna have to go develop our own you know metrics around this and then I was digging around in the developer documentation online and I saw Movement Disorder Toolkit, you know, Tremor and Discondition. I was like, huh, that's, that's funny. Uh, and I, you know, I just kind of on a whim, I was like, I'm gonna, you know, cause there was a little email, you know, if you're curious about this toolkit email here, i so I emailed there. And about eight minutes later, uh, the team lead there from Apple emailed me back he's like, yeah, we should talk. I was like, wow, this is weird. Uh, okay, let's go. Uh, yeah. And, and. Uh, and so that was the beginning of us kind of figuring out about it. But um, I think it, it worked out really nicely because Apple, again, had done a lot of the legwork and they had they basically had this API, that you know, people can pick up. But uh, we were in a better position to actually take that across the finish line in the context of our ecosystem and get it to something that could be FDA approved. That makes sense. So yep. it was a good I think a good division of labor. Um and, you know, hopefully hopefully now that we've um, kind of taken it across the finish line, other folks can benefit from this move to sort of API as well. And there can be a whole community of folks that start to leverage that. Um, but yeah, r- right now we're sort of the, the, the first people to kind of take it across the, the sort of FDA finish line and uh, be able to deliver it in the context that it can sort of improve somebody's care.
0: I'm sure that team over there is super excited.
1: Yeah, I think they've been, they've been happy with uh, the outcome so far, as far as I can tell.
0: Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show and scroll down to the ratings and review section. Tap the stars to rate the show and then tap the link that says, write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now, back to the show. Apple's there in them, but but you guys also, as, as you mentioned, I think you have a partnership with Medtronic, right? Which yeah. makes this deep brain stimulation called Percept, yeah. right? Yep. And if my understanding is correct, based on what you said and what I read, yeah. which Percept directly records brain signals in people yeah. with Parkinson's and also then deliver, uh, delivers the yeah. therapeutic stimulation. Right? Can you explain yeah. what your partnership with Medtronic is about and what value, you know, your organization hopes to bring to the to that whole dynamic?
1: Yeah. So I think this the simplest way I can probably explain this is you know the the data that the brain sensing data that's coming out of this percept device if that's the only thing you had it just you know it kind of looks like a squiggly line right it, it's it's really hard to take that and take that and directly make okay I, I'm going to make this new clinical decision now right I'm going to I'm going to understand that. but If you can take that data and put it in context with this rich watch data with all this other clinical data with this then you can start to say actually when i see this type of brain signal i know it means that this patient is gonna needs to be these stimulation parameters change in a certain way or needs their medication optimized uh or maybe needs a different completely different program right um and that's sort of the—I mean—that's sort of the hope and promise of having this sort of smart implant, right? Is that it can it can help guide therapy, and so the I, I think why this partnership with Metronic works really well is we can bring this data together with all this context. We can sort of you know hopefully make their therapy um, easier for clinicians to really achieve optimal outcomes for patients, and in process you know give clinicians confidence that like hey when I implant a DBS system if it's a Medtronic DBS system and it has this brain sensing, I know I'm going to be able to optimize it for these patients. Like I know it's going to, they're going to have really good outcomes.
0: I mean, it's funny though, when you say that, I think of a, like at some point, if you have enough in there, like it's going to be able to make that decision on its own.
1: I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I I think that, you know, if you think about what we're building, really, it's, it's a giant database of rich biomarkers, interventions and outcomes. Right? right. And then, you know, as and so the you know, the more of that you have, the more you can say, okay, if I see these biomarkers, I know, you should have these interventions to get these outcomes. And that's, yeah, it's like what Flatiron, for example, has been able to build up in oncology.
0: Right, right. Now, I know you guys have been deeply focused in Parkinson's, but yeah, I'm assuming you can apply what you learned in Parkinson's to a lot of other neurological issues i'm 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 gonna guess you know multiple sclerosis autism spectrum disorder ocd uh, maybe alzheimer's i think if i had to go out on a limb i might say chronic pain although i feel like that might be a little farther out but you know yeah yeah i mean
1: as I, i kind of was alluding this earlier like I think the key for us is the underlying science has to be there. Like there has to be something predictive and useful we can do with the data that's available. And right now for us, it feels like the next area that's going to be is MS. And we're running some kind of pilots in MS right now to see kind of how that pans out. I, if you had to kind of twist my arm right now, I would say that our second indication is probably going to be MS that we support. In addition to kind of maybe expanding out, I, I almost think about, um, there's a, there's a group of patients, uh, not patients even, there's a group of people that have uh, what's called prodromal Parkinson's, right? So they don't have Parkinson's diagnosis, but they're likely to go into develop Parkinson's. I almost think about that as a different indication, but that's a really, really important one because sort of the, the, the drugs of the future are not really gonna be meant for folks that already have a PD diagnosis. They're gonna be neuroprotective, right? So you're right. never gonna get a PD diagnosis. That's the goal, but then you gotta go find those folks with some high confidence and that's that's a that's a fun problem too that we're working on expanding into and that actually something like the apple watch which again already has like a big install base is going to be kind of an important platform to be able to kind of go and find those folks
0: so it's funny because i i I, i'm i'm giving a lot of talk because of the new book and so forth and i'm like you know i can't imagine that people aren't you know going to have these things as early warning systems so Part of me says, I mean, do you think there's a role for data analytics and wearable devices in early detection of, I know it's Parkinson's disease, but neurological issues that, I mean, I already have the Apple Watch on. It's just this app that's sitting on there that's sort of monitoring.
1: I mean, I think the, the important ingredient there is, let's say there's an early detection, right? What do you do about it? What do you the, the person who just got detected now that you know you have early you might get you're having to develop what do you do about it and i think why parkinson's is exciting in that area right now is there are upcoming in the next six to 18 months neuroprotective trials that you can go enroll in if you're likely to go on to develop pd that may slow your progression may prevent you from ever pro- progressing right that, that's something like very tangible that you can do with that knowledge right there's also some like softer things like exercise more like his exercise has been a little bit, which would be good to know, right? But like, just generally good advice, I think. Uh, but uh, and so yeah, I, mean, I think so that's, that's kind of key for me as I think about that is how can you pair like in cardiac, right? If you get early detection of cardiac stuff, there's something you can do about it, right? You can go yes. save your life, essentially. And, and uh, so I'm looking for opportunities in neurology, whether it's Parkinson's or MS, where if you get the early detection, there's an intervention that you can go pursue that is gonna you know hopefully meaningfully change your long-term outcome
0: yeah i also think like a lot of people want to know so that they can plan plan their lives accordingly. yeah maybe right? that, yeah. Uh, yeah i hear most doctors say well i mean there's nothing i can do about it and i'm like well but I, I want to plan my own life uh yeah yeah you know, it's
1: interesting there's the 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 sort of uh it's the pejorative kind of thing but like the movement disorders, neurologists kind of this this thing, diagnose and adios. It's like the, the sort of kind of cliche uh, you kind know, of thing people say about neurologists, which is like, yeah, you have this. There's not a lot we can do about it. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> uh, and, and so, but is it that, okay, fine. But I, I'm, I'm excited about it to say, well, okay, we can see this happening. Here's what to do about it. And we, we know that there's a high likelihood of success because we have the data to back that up.
0: So I was, you know, again, I was, you know, rooting around and, and doing my research, but like more than most startups, I mean, you guys seem to have sort of laid out your, a whole set of ethical values, right? I mean, first let, you know, talk about the way you view patients, you know, your your company says it wants to be a human centric company where you never forget that brains have owners and that people with brain disease deserve empathy. I mean, how does that translate into design decisions, product development choices, you know, what does it mean to build a human centric database, for example, or how do you view privacy, you know, those sorts of things?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you're kind of alluding to it, it sort of bleeds into everything. Right, Like from the very first, from from the way that we structure the consent agreement, it's like, it's very plain worded language. We're asking for the sort of minimum necessary that we need, giving patients a lot of flexibility uh, to how we think about, you know, again, kind of, how do we sort of ask as little of folks as possible? Cause we know like we're not their main concern, right? Like, uh, so how do we be respectful of that? To to how do we involve um, folks with Parkinson's in in the company in the product development. And, you know, that's, that's something that is not the most straightforward thing to do for a variety of reasons, right? Like, it, you know, people with Parkinson's, they have a challenging neurodegenerative disease. Uh, they, they, you know, they're not just going to be like a, a quote, normal employee at the company, usually, uh, they're on medication that, you know, is wildly changing the dopamine contents of their brain, right? So that's it's, you know, there are all kinds of things and, but you have to, we and I don't know, we we don't have it perfect yet. But we're always trying to get better at it. Like, how do you um, set up systems to work with those people to bring them in to make sure that a a wide range of those voices is heard, not let that influence the design, let that influence the strategy, um we incorporated a patient advisory board formally in in like march i think um we had been doing it informally for a while but like so having this formal patient advisory board is great because we can meet with them on like a regular quarterly basis for example around our kind of key result planning and and do a real sanity check to make sure it's like hey these are the key results the company is going after you know how would you how would you stack rank these as being meaningful to, to patients, uh, and make sure that like that is lining up and that we're not, that we're, we're biasing towards tackling things that are going to be really meaningful to the folks that we're ultimately trying to like benefit here and not doing things that are kind of like, uh, only indirectly benefit or benefiting folks way downstream or something like that. So, um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, I don't know, I, 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 it's also ultimately what makes just going to work every day more rewarding is because you're, you're interacting with the people that again are like they're using your software you're helping them you're seeing the benefit right and they're telling you when it's not when it's not working like expected too and you're getting that feedback um but you know i i have all these friends now that you know have parkinson's and i am super motivated to help them out um and to try and get the best possible outcomes for them
0: now It seems like one. the first thing I said is going to bleed into this next thing. You also have an unusual approach to management and team building, right? So all documents are shared with all employees at all or most meetings are open to all employees. And you give employees a lot of individual responsibility. I mean, it sounds like a fairly flat organization if I had to frame it that way. I mean... How do you summarize your management philosophy? I mean,
1: um, yeah, transparency and autonomy. I think we, we try to optimize for it. Um, you know, I I think it's, I mean, one of the things that I think we've had to grow, you know, it's just kind of a growth thing is like, as you, you know, as we go from, from 10 to 20 to now 65 plus folks, you want to make sure that folks um, benefit from the transparency and autonomy, but don't also feel the pressure to like know everything that's going on, right? So you have to kind of make sure that everybody, we spend a lot of time on internal comms right and just making sure you know here's what we're doing here's why we're doing it you know here are the patients we're helping here are the clinicians we're helping and then just repeating 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 and then every quarter as the goals as you know as we try to get more and more ambitious making sure that gets communicated being very transparent about it I, after every board meeting i do it and ask me like an ama ask me anything with the company share the board deck they can ask about you know where the company is going and everything from like strategy to finances to kind of like in the weeds board discussions, happy to, happy to share that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think it, you know, it's one of those things where, I mean, you have to, you know, be careful about hiring a business, but ultimately you want to trust the people, right. That are on your team, uh, and then have them trust you reciprocally. And that's, uh, if you can do that, it's, uh, it's a superpower, right? If you can't do that, you need to have all this like rules and bureaucracy and stuff. And that makes things very slow. But if you can do that, you can, you can be very, very responsive to feedback from customers um, and feedback from, from patients and clinicians. And uh, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of running a startup, right? Is you can, you can respond very quickly
0: and move very quickly.
1: But I think the foundation of that is trust. For me, the foundation of trust is uh, transparency and autonomy.
0: So now let's, You say something right on the front of your website or or, or on the website that says potentially discovering new biomarkers for disease progression. And I think the term is digital biomarker, which, of course, I love that term. Um, Can you are there any examples that you can share that you guys have might have like, you know, not giving away like the trade secrets or anything, but that you guys have sort of identified as unique? Yeah,
1: we're we're um, with we a few publications coming in September that I don't really want to scoop, but we're republishing <laughs> it both. We're publishing at movement disorder society um, and also the world society for functional neurosurgery. So those are two big conferences that are important to the, the Parkinson's kind of uh, clinical community. Um, but I'll say generally it's um, we've been able to do more uh, as two things have been, become more true. So one is obviously keeping patients on the platform for longer, so having to come back visit after visit after visit, so you can actually see some trajectory, right? Like that's super important. Um, And, you know, as we've started to have patients on the platform now for a couple of years, we're able to say more interesting things there, right? Um, The other thing that's important that we've, we've been able to do more is make sure that we're, as much as possible, we're bringing that data that reads directly on what's happening in the brain and can be related to underlying mechanism right so it's one thing to have like a lot of continuous symptom data you can show that symptom data evolves over time it's a completely different thing to have that plus say hey and by the way this is how the underlying brain network is shifting over time or this is how this blood-based biomarker of mitochondrial dysfunction in the brain is evolving over time and it's really making that link that allows you to say something that's not you know oh here's how the symptoms are progressing and we think this is indicative of disease progression it's actually saying hey like we think this is actually a disease progression signal here we can see it clinic being clinically meaningful but also we can say that actually the brain structure or the brain chemistry is also changing over time in a way that correlates that makes sense so uh you know it's early days obviously i'm um, like you know th- i think these publications are a good, a good first step but um it's uh yeah, as it's where we got to go. So we got to get more patients, keep them on for longer and then get more of this underlying what is really going on in the brain data linked with the kind of continuous symptom data that allows you to quantify um, what's going on with folks. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I can see the the value of this, you know, growing in orders of magnitude as you understand other diseases and mm-hmm. those, the changes that are, because there's, I'm sure there's going to be massive overlap in some diseases. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 i
1: mean there's co-pathologies there's you know underlying networks that are highly correlated in ad and bd yeah
0: yeah so i want to circle back and ask you uh a different frame for understanding what you know what you're trying to do i i read an mm-hmm. opinion piece in uh that you wrote in med city news where wow. you you argue about precision neurology. I mean, and I've been yeah. talking about precision medicine. I feel like yeah. forever. Um, what do you mean by that? I mean, how close yeah. is the analogy from other forms of precision medicine, like oncology? And if you if you want to do precision neurology right, what kinds of data do we need?
1: Yeah. So I think for me, the where something transitions over to something you can reasonably call precision medicine. Is when you can use data to make a prediction that is going to be clinically meaningful uh whether that prediction is you know how a therapy should be configured or prescribed or dosed or again like trial matching or whatever it is like it's it's data being predictive in, in the context of an indication and so when i think about what that looks like in parkinson's i c- i can tell you that the two data sources that have been the most predictive by far uh, up up until now at least have been the continuous apple watch symptom data and the uh electrophysiology the invasive brain sensing that's coming out of the implants uh i am extremely hopeful and i think we have good reason to believe that we'll find other data sources that are going to be predictive as we scale up and collect more of it but you know right now those two are those two are the areas where we're able to take that data today and and you know Put it in context, the right context for clinicians, and say, "Hey, like this, this is indicative of a pattern which predicts that this patient needs their stimulation reduced, or needs their medications changed, or you know should actually be enrolled in this clinical trial, that kind of thing." So, um, but yeah, there, there's going to be more. There's going to be more. I think the, the uh, one of the issues with doing this in a disease like Parkinson's, super heterogeneous, super time bearing you need scale. Right. That's why we're focused on scaling to, you know, 50 plus hospitals by the end of the year, you know, representing a population of 10,000 plus patients like you need that big bulk of folks so that you can really see the signal and the noise and and pull out the individual patterns.
0: Well, okay. so assuming that that happens, if I just follow every other disease I've been watching over time, the more precise we get is, do you think, based on what you've seen so far, that you're going to see multiple etiologies that need to be managed, right? Because it's like saying breast cancer back in the day.
1: I wouldn't be the first person to say that either. I mean, and that's like the, whenever you go to any of these, any PD conference, right? Whether it's a scientific conference or a clinical conference, that's sort of like the whispers around the lunch table, right? It's like, hey, like we're not really dealing with one disease here. Like we're dealing with these different co-pathologies, you're dealing with PD-1, PD-2, PD-3. Uh, and And everybody's trying to think about, okay, how do we actually evolve to recognize that and treat these separately, and and that's you know hopefully we're a meaningful part of that journey with with Labs and making that making that a reality because exactly as with oncology it's it's a step function change in your ability to treat those folks to develop new therapies for those folks um, and really to understand the neuroscience of the disease right unlock you know the potential to reach new targets.
0: Yeah. No. Well, I mean, I I still think like at some point it'd be great to have an early warning system built, just built into the watch.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll make sure that you when we set up this uh, this uh, initial pipeline trial, I'll make sure that you get an invite to enroll.
0: You can kind of okay. You can see. That yeah. sounds great. Well, it was great talking to you. Um, you know, uh, I I I can only wish you incredible success because I mean the changes or the advances you guys are making are going to be meaningful to a you know patient population that really needs that help
1: oh uh, well, thanks Harry. I mean we hope we hope so yeah we're uh, we're pushing on it
0: excellent thank you
1: all right thanks Harry
0: that's it for this week's episode you can find a full transcript of this episode as well as the full archive of episodes of the Harry Glorickian show and moneyball medicine at our website go to glorickian.com and click on the tab, Podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorikian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.